So this part of horse racing is familiar. They're off in the Kentucky Derby. A good start for California Chromie broke a bit outwardly. We know the two and a half minutes of hooves pounding soil. We know the announcer yelling out the names of horses, which have this wild poetry to them when strung together. Carpe Diem, American Pharaoh, Dance with Fate, Uncle Cy, Harry's Holiday. But California Chrome shines bright in the Kentucky Derby! You might have noticed the jockeys. Small of stature, big in skill. Can you imagine Victor Espinosa, a brilliant ride? But there is a whole other world to the racetracks. And it's one with food? you might not expect. If you come by around 11.30 or 12 o'clock, you get this great aroma of onions and peppers sautéing, and, and then they'll usually throw some pork on there too, carne asada, and you just get these great aromas going on on the backside. You're listening to Gravy. 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 <laughs> Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today we're going to hop between a couple of racetracks to learn about the world behind the barns and what the food, cooked and served, can teach us about who lives and works there. My partner in today's episode is Tara Anderson. Up in Louisville, Kentucky, where everyone is frantically preparing for the Derby right now. Picking mint for your juleps, huh? Oh yeah. We'll go back to Tara in Kentucky in a bit, but first... Tippy, what are you doing? <laughs> to a barn in New Orleans, where I recently got my first experience of what they call the backside of the racetrack. I'm with a guy who's on a nickname basis with a whole bunch of horses. My name's Ricky Janini, and I'm the assistant trainer for Brad Cox, who has a racing stable of about 50 horses. We have 10 here in New Orleans, and he has about 40 up in Hot Springs, Arkansas right now. Ricky's been working on racetracks for almost his whole life. He got into the business through his parents, who provided hay, straw, and feed for the animals. Ricky has a tendency to baby-talk his horses, like this one, who just won a race a few days ago. It's got the fabulous name of Chocolate Ride. Hey buddy. So I'm a big champion. I want my candy. Right? I'm a big champion. My first encounter with food here on the backside of the racetrack was actually the favored snacks of the horses. So they, like... Peppermints. Yeah, they like, you know, back way back when, sugar cubes they used to feed them. And so I guess it's kind of the same correlation, just something sweet. And <laughs> happens to have a mint taste to it as well. And they must have very minty, fresh breath. Yeah, especially for him. He wants to impress the ladies, right, buddy? <laughs> the mints are just the tip of the iceberg. Horses here get five-star service. They actually eat three times a day. We feed them an early breakfast at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and then they get a lunch at about 11, and then they'll get a dinner about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. All that feeding requires a whole staff of workers, as does the run of other jobs involved in horse care and training. Freddie is a groom. He does everything from he cleans their stall, he, cl he brushes and cleans them. We're only using first names for most workers, for reasons that will become clear later in the story. The grooms are maybe the most intimate with the horses. They give them baths nearly every day if it's not too cold. And then this is Filiberta. She's walking one of our horses. She's what's called a hot walker. Just like when a marathon runner goes out there and runs a race, they'll walk for a little while to let their muscles cool down, their respiratory system cool down, so horses can't do that on their own, so we have people that walk them around. The workers baby the horses, applying medicine, picking the dirt out of their hooves. They're like little kids. I mean, you got they can't do any of this stuff themselves, so we have to do 
do everything for them. Little kids who happen to be professional athletes. Exactly, exactly. At 8.30 a.m. on a chilly weekday morning, Ricky and his team have already been up for several hours. Everyone is bundled up, trainers and exercise riders breezing their horses. The skyscrapers of New Orleans' central business district peek through the fog across the track. Every morning, this is what we do almost every day of the week with, uh, with the horses. Starting at 6 a.m.? Starting at 6, 6 a.m., yeah. <laughs> Rain, shine, as long as the track's not frozen, we're out here training. It is a demanding schedule, not just every day, but through the year. You see, each racetrack in the South and across the country has its season, ranging from a few weeks to a few months. All the trainers, grooms, and hot walkers will be here in New Orleans with their horses from the race on Thanksgiving through the Louisiana Derby in late March. There would be one year we went from New Orleans to Kentucky, Kentucky to upstate New York, from upstate New York to Long Island, New York, Long Island to Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky to Louisville, and then Louisville back to New Orleans, all in a 12-month time span. It's a life constantly in transition. Yeah, we are all gypsies, carny folk, however you want to call us. I can imagine you could get used to it, and then it would be sort of dull being in one place all the time. Yeah, I actually, I took a break from the racetrack for a little while and just worked at a horse farm in Lexington, and after about three months, I got stir-crazy, and I'm like, I gotta go somewhere. And uh, yeah, just some people are cut out for farm life, some people are cut out for racetrack life, and racetrack life is moving every three or four months. For a lot of workers, racetrack life also dictates some pretty unconventional living conditions. Many racetracks don't allow kids to be on the backside, so some workers will leave their families and travel solo between tracks. Many workers live in dormitories in the horse barns. It's pretty much like a dorm room. I mean, it's maybe 15 by 20 feet large, and unfortunately, it's not ideal conditions, but it is. the racetracks do provide housing for the people that work back here. And all of that helps shape the food of the backside of the track. No kitchens to cook in. Back when Ricky was really bouncing from track to track, he worked out a system for himself. He's from this big Italian-American family and was bummed out by having to rely on a microwave for his meals. What I do is I make, before I leave, if I know I'm going to be somewhere for a period of time where I can't cook, I'll make a big batch of stuff and freeze it, and then I can just thaw it out from time to time. I have Ziploc bags of sauce so that all I have to do is, at least I can, I might not be making the pasta, but I can go out and buy a good bag of pasta or some ravioli, and then I got my homemade sauce to put on top of it. Ricky's such a good cook, he runs a food truck called Sweet and Savory, which serves up crepes and gelato to Louisville residents in the summer. But most people at the track aren't eating ravioli or gelato. I'd say 75% of the people, Spanish is their primary language back here. And I never took Spanish in school, but I have become partially bilingual because, just because that's it's your means of communication back here. And so the food the workers on the backside of the racetrack like is largely Latino. But if you're from Guatemala, like Freddie and Claudia, a groom and a hot walker here, it's not so easy to find those sorts of dishes. Oh, pues todos los días cocinamos porque es difícil conseguir la comida latina, mejor la preparamos. We cook every day because it's difficult to get Latino food, so it's better for us to just cook it. The ingredients are the same that everyone uses. The difference is in how you cook the food. 
Claudia is standing outside a horse stall wearing cowboy boots with pink trim. She's been working on racetracks for four years, Freddie for seven. She cooks for the two of them, but she has to get creative because they live in the dormitory. No hay una cocina. Cocinamos como podemos. Porque si debemos adaptarnos a vivir aquí, porque si vivimos afuera, tenemos que rentar. There's no kitchen. We cook however we can. We should adapt to living here because if we live outside of the track, we have to rent, and it's very difficult. We use hot plates and crock pots. She cooks soup and rice in that crock pot. And Freddie's favorite, fried chicken. But it's even harder at the racetrack they'll go to next, the one in Kentucky. They have smoke detectors in the room. And so when they cook, it, you know, gives off the... It's, it's more of a security thing, I guess, but it's, I think it's a little bit overkill. But so basically what they'll do is they'll cook up food outside of their rooms so that when the fumes go off, it, it doesn't set off the smoke detectors. They don't let us cook. It's like a law. You can't cook. If security sees us, they'll take everything away. They pass by every three months, checking the rooms, and if they find the crockpots or electric pans, they take them away because they're not allowed. Why do they stick with this, then? If the hours are long and security might take your hot plate? The answer is in the economics equation so many migrants face. Claudia and Freddie can make many times more money here than what they did in Guatemala. It enables them to do things they otherwise couldn't. Bueno, estamos construyendo nuestra casa ahora. We're building a house in Guatemala right now. Coming up, we head north to the racetrack in Louisville, Kentucky with Tara Anderson to learn more about this Latino world behind the scenes and how workers manage to eat the foods of home in spite of the challenges. That's ahead. There's the sponsorship music, and today I want to talk a bit more about the online storytelling of The Bitter Southerner. Now, you might hear that name and think, what? The Bitter Southerner? But editor Chuck Reese and his creative director Dave Whitling have done a lot of thinking about what the name means. And we were talking one day, and Dave reminded me of a song by the Drive-By Truckers from their Southern Rock Opera album called The Southern Thing. And there's a line in it that says, proud of the glory, stare down the shame, the duality of the Southern thing. And I always loved that line because, you know, that if you live in the South, you live with dualities. You know, our past is not exactly the, the brightest part of who we are. So we were talking about that, and we were like, that's it. That's what the whole site's about. It's about the duality of the Southern thing. You can read stories that get at that duality at bittersouthernercom And now to the racetrack in Kentucky with Tara Anderson. We're at Churchill Downs in Louisville, the home of the Kentucky Derby, There are just a few weeks left to go before the big race, and things are just starting to pick up here for the spring season. Ricky and his crew have made the trip from New Orleans, and so have the horses. Seven horses come in this morning, and 
It was at two o'clock this morning, so which means they were on horse vans about ten hours. They were on a on a van and they had access to hay but no grain and very limited water because we don't hang water buckets in there because they'll just splash around. Churchill Downs is a massive complex. The front side has a seating capacity of 52,000, including the grandstands, the clubhouse, and the luxury suites. That's not to mention the additional 80,000 or so people who fled the infield on Derby Day for the wildest party this side of Mardi Gras. On the back side, 47 cinder block barns hold up to 1,400 horses. Ricky says for every five horses, three people are employed. There's enough space in the dormitories and tack rooms, the storage areas at the end of each barn, for about 500 workers to live on site. And many of these workers are from the same country, the same region even, which became clear when we walked up to a groom named Miguel. Uh, we're gonna find, he's from Guatemala, I know that, whether he's from Santa Rosa or not. Miguel, tú eres de la Guatemala? Yeah. Okay, ¿dónde en Guatemala? Uh, Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa. Every single one of the workers I spoke to at Churchill Downs was from Santa Rosa, Guatemala. Santa Rosa is a department, like a state in the U.S., of fewer than 900 square miles. That's half the size of Rhode Island. It's in the southern part of the country, along the coast, and most of its economy is based in agriculture. 19-year-old Luis is an exercise rider who spends his day putting the horses through their workouts. I ask him why so many people from Santa Rosa work at the track. You'll hear interpreter Amy Shelton too. Bueno, la mayoría todos los personas de Santa Rosa, en Santa Rosa es mucho campo, muchos caballos, muchos ganados que le llaman vacas. Se trabaja mucho. Ustedes todos están acostumbrados al campo. Santa Rosa is a, a rural place where everybody works in the countryside, works raising cattle, and works with horses. So we're all really used to the country life. So there's a lot of people like horses here. <laughs> the same. <laughs> and these Santa Rosans like to bring a taste of home with them. This is Miguel's wife, Aidy, who also works at the track and does all the cooking for the couple. Sopa de pollo, sopa de res, ensalada, arroz. Chicken soup, beef soup, salad, rice. Idy says she can get most of the ingredients for these dishes at one of the Mexican groceries near the track or at Walmart. There are also people who sometimes bring in coolers of homemade tamales or tacos to sell at the track, but Idy doesn't love those. A veces, pero no mucho. No casi no me gusta. Yeah, so sometimes we, um, when we don't cook, we'll, we'll buy food, but we really don't like to do that that much. I don't really like the food that other people sell. In addition to the informal food sellers on the backside, there's the track kitchen, the on-site cafeteria that serves all day. The menu is divided into breakfast, American, and Spanish. The American menu has a picture of an American flag on it. The Spanish menu has a picture of the Spanish flag, as in Spain, the colonial power whose language Central American peoples share. What's the most popular thing on the menu here? The Spanish menu, of course. About 90% of our customers are Hispanic. That's Marsha White. She's worked here for about four years, serving up fajitas, burritos, tacos, and the very occasional tuna fish sandwich. And what's your title here? Everything. <laughs> I cook, I serve, I'm cashier, I busboy, I do the dishes, whatever needs to be done. Just because most of the customers are Latino, though, that doesn't mean everybody likes to eat exactly the same thing. If they particularly don't like something on it because our cook is Mexican, and if it's a Guatemalan or a Cuban, they may add something or take away from it. So we like to make sure that they feel at home. Because a lot of the people here, they travel from track to track, and so we, we want them to have a taste of their home and for them to feel like they're our family as well. 
Another home away from home for many of the workers is the Backside Learning Center, a small nonprofit that has provided a variety of services since 2004. Track workers can work on their English language skills and study for the U.S. citizenship test. And because children aren't allowed on the backside of the track, there's a family program at a nearby church that meets twice a week. Volunteers help kids with their homework while the parents attend English classes. Sherry Stanley is the center's director. She says it was founded out of necessity. Because at that time, uh, there weren't a lot of bilinguals. And so there was a big you know, communication barrier between the English speakers and the Spanish speakers. And they just recognized the need for workers to have a place to work on their English skills and be able to communicate. A few decades ago, most of the track workers were African-American. But now, Sherry says, of the thousand workers on the backside of the track here, 75% are Hispanic. And the high number of Guatemalans traces to what has been going on in Central America. Like in the 80s, early 90s, when there was a lot of unrest, particularly in Central America, and then as immigration works, there was a trickle of some Guatemalans and people from other countries that came in at that time, and then slowly their family members and friends from their home communities you know, they were told that there was work here, and they they came here, and their family members helped them get jobs. So th- that's how the population grew, and now it's um, a very large segment of the population here. <laughs> Are you all finished with what you were doing? I don't yeah, want to we interrupt. Los niños dicen que On a recent evening, Maria and Bertila, both from Santa Rosa, Guatemala, were at the center's family program with their children. Maria's nine-year-old son, Angel, has a round face and close-cropped dark hair, and he was happy to talk to me because it got him out of doing homework. I asked him what kinds of Guatemalan food he liked, but he preferred to talk about his fast food favorites. So your favorite thing in the whole wide world to eat is what? I don't know, like pizza or donuts, Taco Bell. Angel's mom, Maria, laughed when I told her what he said. Taco Bell. (laughs) Yo quiero Taco Bell, he says, and sometimes she gets it for him. Occasionally, she'll get takeout from a nearby Mexican restaurant, El Mocajete, that several track workers mentioned they like. But for a special occasion or when she's feeling homesick for Guatemala, it's got to be tamales. There are lots of steps involved. I asked Maria to talk me through the way she makes them. Hago la masa, la deshago y este la pongo a cocer hasta que hierva la masa. I make the cornmeal mush first, cooking it until it thickens. Then I cut the meat into pieces. While Maria is listing ingredients, I'm thinking about how far she must have come to end up here. Tomate. Tomatoes. La, la pepita de la calabaza. Pumpkin seeds. I don't know Maria's immigration status, but a 2003 survey found that many backstretch workers are undocumented. Detailed statistics are hard to come by because people are afraid to talk about this part of their lives. Canela, chile ancho, el que está en negro. Cinnamon, ancho chili, green peppers. According to the Pew Research Center, there were as many as 35,000 unauthorized immigrants in Kentucky in 2012. Then I mix it all together with the meat and wrap the whole thing in a banana leaf. I've heard it's not uncommon for someone to get deported. And even if that happens, they say, I'll see you next year. That's because many return. (laughs) 
I don't make tamales often because all those ingredients are expensive, maybe two or three times a year. Maria's son Angel likes tamales a lot, the one Guatemalan dish that really gets him excited. Maria learned how to make tamales from her mom, so they also keep her connected to her extended family. Who did she learn from? Maria's mom learned from her own mom, who probably never imagined that her tamales would be served to a little boy growing up in the United States. This Sunday, the Backside Learning Center is doing something new. For the first time ever, we're having a derby party to kind of acknowledge the work that backside workers, or their role in making derby happen. Yes, it's happening a week early because workers will be busy on derby day itself. But Sherry says they're making a point. You know, everyone sees what happens on the front side and the actual racing and all the kind of glitz around, you know, derby and just millionaires row and all that. But most people are very surprised to know that there is a huge, a very large population of about a thousand people that it takes to make all of that happen. So on the first Saturday in May, racing fans at Churchill Downs will wear big showy hats and spring dresses, seersucker suits, and bow ties. They'll eat ham biscuits and Kentucky burgoo, and they'll probably drink a lot of mint juleps. But on the backside of the track, remember that the Derby really runs on rice and beans, carne asada, and of course, tamales. Tara Anderson is a radio producer based in Louisville, where she covers arts and culture for public radio station WFPL. She prefers her bourbon on the rocks. We had a whole lot of help on this episode. Thanks to Daniel Gillum, Amy Shelton, Kate Richardson, Travis Lux, Lauren DeGeorge, and the staff at the Backside Learning Center, and to Simone Reggie and Tess Monahan for reading those English translations. Music for this episode was from Los Amigos Invisibles, Laura Rebeloso, Atercio Palados, Prohimo Bill, La Inedita, Nova Lima, Fosforo, Poddington Bear, and Lee Rosevere. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... A new issue of our sibling print journal, also called Gravy, just came out, everybody. And it's one that makes me wish I could spend the whole summer with a stack of books just reading. Well, reading and eating. Here's why. The new issue of Print Gravy is all about what to read and cook in 2015. It's got previews of a whole bunch of books soon to be released, including a preview of The Jemima Code, Tony Tipton Martin's book that was also part of a story we told here on this podcast. There's also something from a book called Lesser Beasts, which is a global history of the pig, a Senegalese cookbook, too. How do you get a copy of Print Gravy, you ask? All you have to do is become a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and you'll have one delivered to your doorstep four times a year. You can learn more at our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, as soon as Donnie Penn Travis was old enough, he left the Mississippi farm he grew up on. I was gone. I went to the city. I stayed there three years. That was a miserable time of my life. And it's just thoughts that came to me. I left paradise. Go to hell. <laughs> the exchange between the farming south and the urban north, that's next time. 
You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Baby, please don't go. Baby, please don't go back to New Orleans. You know it hurts me so. 